welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright, down the line from London. Hi Octavia, (laughs) how are you? Hi Carrie, I am at the end of a really filthy cold, so I'm just going to apologize straight up for whatever weird, creaky, croaky noises my voice decides to make today. But other than that, I'm okay. How about you? I'm also okay. I feel that I have been enjoying some cherry blossoms. I feel that a lot of my feelings lately have been about the natural world, which is nice, (laughs) but on to the show. Today, we're delighted to welcome the writer Tan Tuanang to talk about his third novel, The House of Doors. The House of Doors is based around the writer Somerset Maugham's stay on the island of Penang in Malaysia in 1921. It is also about the stories he learns from the couple with whom he is lodging and the interplay between their fact and his fiction. So we thought this was a perfect springboard for a show that explored writing about writers. We'll be talking about the real and imagined writers that we've loved in fiction, the art of writing about writing, and the authors we'd most love to read a novel about. But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Tuan Octavia? I sure can. Tan Tuan Eng was born in Penang, Malaysia. His debut novel, The Gift of Rain, was long listed for the Man Booker Prize in 2007 and has been widely translated. His second novel, The Garden of Evening Mists, won the Man Asian Literary Prize in 2012 and the 2013 Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize 2012 and also the 2014 (laughs) International IMPAC Dublin Literary Award. He divides his time between Kuala Lumpur and Cape Town. Also, a quick reminder that we are on Patreon. If you would like to support the work we do and get an exciting extra mini-sode every month, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash litfriction. You will get monthly exclusive mini-sodes. You will also get the chance to suggest topics for us to wang on about, and we love to wang on about them for you. Our latest Patreon was all about Paris, both as a city and a literary idea. Also, as you probably know, because we've been announcing it on the show for a while now, Octavia's memoir is coming out this June. And Bookshop.org wanted to offer our listeners a special deal. Octavia, can you tell us some more about it? I sure can. I'm also blushing as I say this, but you uh, probably heard on the last show that the brilliant news that my my book, This Ragged Grace, has been selected as the Bookshop.org book of the month for June. And we just wanted to give you one more reminder that if you would like to read it, Lit Friction listeners can get free shipping at the moment from bookshop.org and also 10% off with the code RAGGED10, that's capital R-A-G-G-E-D-10. All sales through bookshop.org support independent bookshops, and there is a link to pre-order and more details on that in the show notes. In addition to that pre-order link on bookshop.org, you can also find a list of all the books we recommended today. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Tan Tuan Eng, a discussion of writing about writers, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. Write all about it. Oh my God. I actually came up with that in the moment, Octavia, because in the script, it just says pun here. I'm looking at it saying pun here. I'm amused. (laughs) I'm amused by pun here. Tan Tuang Yang, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me this evening. Very pleased to be here. 
So we've asked you to start with a reading from the House of Doors. Do you mind setting it up for us? This section that I'm going to read takes place right at the start of the novel. Um, the main character, Leslie Hamlin, has received a surprised package. And she opens it to find that it's a book. So she takes it into her house and she walks through her house. And this is where the reading begins. In the sitting room, I walk past my watercolor paintings of old Penang shop houses to the wall of photographs above the Blutner piano. I lean back and study the photographs, searching for a particular one I have in mind. I have not looked, really looked at them in years. Many of the photographs are of Robert and me with our two sons. A few of them show people who had visited us in Penang, stage actors, MPs, members of the aristocracy, writers, opera singers. I can't even recall their names now. And anyway, they are probably all long dead. Claiming pride of place on this wall of imprisoned time is my wedding portrait. Robert and I are standing on the steps of St. George's Church in Penang. I straighten the slight tilt of the silver frame, wiping the thin layer of dust from it with my forefinger. People around here had expected me to pack up and return to Penang after I buried Robert. There were days when I asked myself why I didn't do it. But sail home to what and to whom? Everyone I had known in Malaya was either dead or had disappeared into distant lands and different lives. And then war had broken out all over the world and the Japanese had invaded Malaya. So I had remained here, a daub of paint worked by time's paintbrush into this vast, eternal landscape. Below my wedding portrait hangs a photograph of two women, their blouses and frocks and hats quaintly old-fashioned from another age. Ethel and me, each with a rifle in our hands, the mock Tudor facade of the spotted dog in Kuala Lumpur looming behind us. The photograph had been taken after a shooting competition on the Padang. Poor, poor Ethel. My eyes glide to the photograph next to it. I unhook it and study it in the light of the windows. Looking at the four of us, Willie Moore and Gerald and Robert and myself, lounging in our rattan chairs under the cashewarina tree in the garden, my mind loops back to the two weeks in 1921 when the writer and his secretary had stayed with us at Kasuwari House. I put down the photograph. The morning is decanting its light down the slopes of the far mountains. It is the autumn equinox today. Here, in the southern bowl of the earth, the portions of day and night are exactly equal. The world is at an equilibrium, but I myself feel unsteady off balance. There is not the slightest stir of wind, and there is no sound, not even the usual petulant bleating of the sheep from the valley. The world is so still, so quiescent, that I wonder if it has stopped turning. It's so lovely to hear you read that, especially after finishing the novel. 
<laughs> there's so much more resonance to that. So thank you. It's a great example of how evocative your writing is, and we'll get into that. But first, I wanted to ask you about Somerset Mom, because uh, as, as alluded to in that passage, this is a book in part about his visit to Penang in Malaya in the 1920s. Uh, what attracted you to the story? Why was was this where you started with this novel? Well, I, I've always been a, a fan of Somerset Maugham ever since I started reading him in my late teens. Um, and one of my favorite short stories of his is The Letter, which is set in Malaya and specifically Singapore in, in the 1920s. I found out that it was actually based on a real-life murder trial. Um, a, a woman called Ethel Proudlock had been charged with murdering a man that she claimed had tried to rape her, so she shot him six times. Mom took that story and turned it into the letter. Uh, when I started um, writing The House of Doors, I wanted to explore this 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 story, how Somerset Maugham came to Malaya and how he came to write the letter. But I also wanted to write about Leslie, Leslie Hamlin, um, who is the main character of uh, The House of Doors. I had a picture of her in my mind right from the start, uh, of this woman who is constrained by what society expected of her. And I was also interested in, in bringing in uh, another character uh, called uh, Sun Yat-sen, who's a real-life character, and he, he was a revolutionary. And he actually had a base in Penang, uh, in this street called Armenian Street, which was the same street where my, my father grew up in the 50s. So when I was a child, my father always said, oh, do you, do you know that... Um, Sun Yat-sen lived just next door. Now, it, it, he was exaggerating because it wasn't next door. It was a few doors away. But it was always fascinating to to hear that, you know, he, that a huge part of world history had had its beginnings in this little street in Penang uh, because it was where Sun Yat-sen pl- planned and plotted the uh, the overthrow of the, the Chinese empire and set up the, uh, the first Republican government in, in 1911. So all these elements had to, I had to find a way to bring all these elements together, and it was extremely difficult, and that's one of the reasons why it took so many years to finish this book. <laughs> <laughs> Were you at all apprehensive about bringing to life these real characters? You know, uh, writing about a real writer like Somerset Moon, but also Sun Yat-sen. Oh, of course, yes. Uh, I was. I wasn't keen to do it because. I knew that you know, a lot of people have told me that, oh, it must have been so easy um, writing about these real-life characters because you didn't have to invent anything. It, it was just there. You just had to report on what they were like. But the fact is that writing about uh, real-life characters is very uh, constricting. You have to stay faithful to their personalities and characters, so you can't move the plot in any way that you want to, the uh, the development of the story has to be in line with the, the characters. It has to be what they would have done. So I found that very restrictive. And also, of course, you had to get the uh, descriptions of the, the way they spoke, the way they dressed, the way they thought. You have to be as accurate as possible. Um, I found it 
very difficult, and I, I much prefer writing about characters I make up in my mind than than writing about real life characters. So I don't know how Hilary Mantel did it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting to hear that Leslie was already in your mind, and I believe that because she's such a fully realized character, and I really love that she was kind of the the fictional anchor with these two real life characters. And I was really interested on the structure that you ended up choosing where we alternate between chapters that are following Willie, um, Willie's kind of stream of consciousness and then Leslie. But I was also really interested that Leslie's um, chapters were in the first person and, and Willie was in kind of close third person. So I wonder if that was always what you wanted to do and, and why, I, I don't know. I guess we have a bit more, we don't hear from mom in the first person. And I wonder if that was a deliberate or how you arrived at that structure. Well, it wasn't like that originally because all the chapters were in the first person, even moms. But I found uh, I found it confusing and I knew it would be confusing for the reader as well to have all the chapters uh, being, being narrated by the first person. So, uh, in the end, I decided to divide the chapters into two different methods of, of narration. Uh, it felt more natural for me to to use the first person with with Leslie's chapters because, as uh, well, she she's my invention, so I'm I feel closer to her. I can connect instantly, more more instantly with her. Whereas with Mom, he's he's real, so it it was harder. And also, I wanted this sense of distance that the reader would have with, with, with him because he is also quite a closed-up person as well. Uh, and it was more interesting to have him you know, as, a, as a sort of an omniscient observer. And there was, there was so much information that I wanted to convey that couldn't be done via a first-person narrator as well. It had to be a third person, uh, especially Mom's chapters. I couldn't have him just telling the reader what his early life was like. You know, it would have been unnatural and false. So the, the third-person narrator worked better. Yes, and the epigraph for this book is actually a quote from Somerset Maugham. Fact and fiction are so intermingled in my work that now, looking back on it, I can hardly distinguish one from the other, which feels like such a wonderful way to set up this story because... I don't know, for me as a reader and probably also as a writer reading it, it felt like the, the kind of meta story is this question of, of when we can tell somebody else's story and how do we feel about the potential implications of doing so and all of that. And I, um, I just think it's very interesting in a novel like this that is, you know, it's historical fiction in its own way, but it's also so imagined. Do you feel like that applies to your your own work too, this kind of intermingling of fact and fiction? I, I think so, because uh, if you're using history as a background, you are bringing in uh, facts. Uh, uh, and, and all novels have to be based to a degree on fact, because uh, even, even if you're writing fantasy novels, your your world, your structure, your, your um, societal construct is is more or less you know based on what you yourself know in 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 our real world isn't it, it you, so facts are important and as as long as as 
if you're writing historical fiction or even contemporary fiction, as long as you are accurate and and respectful um, to to the truth, um, I I don't see any ethical issue with using fact in in our writing. It's when you twist the facts to such an extent that you distort it, uh, then then I think it it becomes problematic. Actually, I'm thinking about Hilary Mantel as you answer because she <laughs> she said a lot of lovely things about kind of filling in the gaps of history and sort of understanding the truth as as we know it of the historical record, but also being able to find other truths in fiction that aren't accessible in in books. And you know, the, you have a long list of books that you consulted um, at the end, especially about the, the characters who are, were real people. And I wonder, did you, did you ever feel bogged down in that research or was it a light touch? You know, was it, I noticed at, at the end, you have a note about you had to like change some of the timeline. And I imagine that yes. must have been um, <laughs> very frustrating for you as you were writing. It was, it was. I <laughs> wished, I wish everything had happened in the same year, but they, the, the two main events did not. So, <laughs> Um, <laughs> so I had to, and I knew that if I didn't put a note there, there would be some critic or reviewer who would say, oh, you know, he, he made a mistake with the years. They were actually a year apart. And, uh, and so I had to put that in. Um, but uh, I think Hilary Mantel was also talking about the emotional truth of the mm. characters. Um, again, if you're dealing with real life characters, you you really have to be uh, so focused on finding the, the 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 core of the emotional truth. You can't have them thinking or acting out of character, just so that you it, so, so that uh, that could suit or fit your your story or your narrative. Um, that's why one of the reasons I found difficult again as well in terms of progressing the the story. You know, I had to follow a the timeline. And and be the, the the characters as well, the the personalities. I couldn't have warm acting on jolly and and sociable, um, because he wasn't like that in in real life. He was reticent and he was very shy because of his stammer. And in real life, most of the stories were uh, uh, dug up by Gerald Haxton. He was more of the gregarious, sociable type. And people responded to him by, by spilling the beans about themselves to Gerald more than to Somerset Moore. Can you talk a bit about Gerald? Because he's such a fun character. <laughs> he is. He's a rogue. He's, he's very honest with himself about what he wants. Uh, he wants the good life. He wants Somerset Moore to, 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 to finance the good life. And he's not shy about using his, his body to, to obtain that. And I feel that in in my novel, he's the one who's the happiest person of all because mm. he has no illusions about himself. He has there's no hypocrisy with about him. He lives life the way he wants it, and to hell with society and what they think. Um, whereas the other characters, they are all bound by what by by acting uh, in in accordance with what society expects of them, and consequently they are all messed up and unhappy and. I think Gerald is the only one who is not messed up in, in, the, yeah. in the cast of characters. You know, he's, he's completely free. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about Penang as a setting and, and Penang in the 1920s maybe? Because this seemed like uh, you, you evoked it so fully and it's clearly a place that is, that is very close to you as well in terms of, you know, where you were born and your family and um, 
And I, I just love for you to talk a little bit more about that environment and that atmosphere. Well, I, I was born there, but I moved away uh, to Kuala Lumpur when I was about four years old. And I never really discovered uh, Penang until I moved back there again when I was 10 or, 10 or 11 years old. And then I found out what a magical place it is because it's it's a place because thanks to that so much of the uh, the architecture from the 1900s uh, is still present there uh, has been protected largely that there's an, uh, an atmosphere of timelessness when you walk the streets there it's as though you're walking there you've, you've stepped back in time and i wanted to recreate that and also to to preserve that atmosphere that 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 feeling because Unfortunately, like many parts of the world, like Venice, for instance, it's becoming um, overdeveloped. It's becoming hugely popular with tourists from all over the world. So it's fast losing that, that its charms. It's, it's, it's that feeling of being out of time. So this book is, is, a, is a sort of a, a love letter as well to Penang. Well, I also really felt as I was reading that this is a novel that really lives in the shadow of colonialism. You know, it's set in Penang, but most of the main characters are white. Um, they they are, you know, in, in many ways, colonizers. The British were in charge of Malaya at the time. Um, Sun Yat-sen is also, you know, equally fighting an, another fight of uh, oppressors throwing off their shackles. And was that always going to be a big theme for you? And what did what did you want to show about colonialism in this novel, if if there was indeed something that you wanted to show? Well, I want to show uh, the situation as it was then, but I didn't want it to be a lecture for the reader. So the reader has to decide reading about the story, reading the story, reading about the characters and how how they thought and how they talk how they spoke, how they treated each other, and also how they treated um, the Malays, the Chinese, and the Indians living there. I wanted the reader to come to their own conclusion. I, I don't like reading novels where, where you know, it's very obvious that the author has a, a, a message with a capital M to preach to you. I, I feel like I've, I'm being, I'm being force-fed something. And I, I never like reading novels like that. So when I'm writing my own novels, I also tr- avoid hectoring or preaching to my readers um, obviously for many of the uh, people living in that time it was a very privileged life and for many others it wasn't it was hard as well and it's it's still the same today isn't it <laughs> That's the I mean if, if when I when I read the newspapers in, in the UK there's this great section of the society it's divided by obscene and extreme wealth you see every day in the lifestyle section, somebody's just bought another huge castle somewhere. And then next to it is an article about the cost of living crisis. Uh, and it's still happening today, uh, this, this uh, inequality. And I, I think I liked that about Leslie in particular, again, returning to her, is that I think she has a lot of views about the people who work for her and about homosexuality that, you know, really... Uh, to our modern ear are are pretty in, uh, unacceptable. But at the same time, you're sort of presenting her as a, a flawed but very important protagonist in this book. And she seems like a very fully realized character in that way. 
Yeah, yes. See, again, we, we, it's very dangerous to, to look at the past through through today's lenses because if, if I did that, if I wrote like that, then the, the book would come off sounding inauthentic. Right. Uh, I had to be really authentic to to the times, to the, the mores, and and the the customs and culture there. And it wasn't, uh, you know, Leslie starts off as a typical English woman living in the tropics. She's 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 uh, privileged. She's comfortable. But if you read carefully, she slowly changes. In even in the way she refers to certain sections of the of the community, you notice that once she's met somebody in there i don't want to give away spoilers she starts changing her views she starts she changes not just a view she changes herself so that's the evolution that i wanted a character to have otherwise it wouldn't be an interesting read for if she doesn't change at all it happens slowly it doesn't happen overnight when you were writing that journey were you surprised by the pacing that you had to adopt? Did you find that you had to shift it as it went on? Um, yes. <laughs> it was, uh, in the, I think in the first draft, it, things happened more abruptly and, and, and quicker. And it just did not feel right for the story that I was trying to tell. So in, in many, in, in this, this book was rewritten many, many times. The more I rewrote it, the more I realized that this this can't be a, a fast read. It has to be, it really has to take its time for the characters to change, to grow, or for the characters to, to learn about each other. For instance, the friendship between uh, Willie, Mom, and Leslie. In, in the first few drafts, it happened very quickly because I had to get the plot moving. <laughs> To, to get Leslie to start trusting Willie, I had to, to make the friendship really forced and successful very within the second chapter. Um, whereas if now that you see with this book, they don't really become friends until about halfway through the book. And even then, um, they on, I think they only really become good friends right at the end of the book. And you'll know what I'm talking about, the, uh, the scene on the mm. beach at night. Mm. Yes, yeah. that's when I think they wonderful theme. Be, yes, they they become um, real friends, right? Only right at the end. Mm. It's so interesting that you, yeah, to hear you talk about it because Carrie and I, when we were discussing, you know, we text each other while we're reading the books before uh, the show, <laughs> and we both kept saying, "God, there's something so classic about this novel," and I think that what you're describing there is kind of it. It's that the pace at which the, yes. the the story unfolds and the relationships deepen and everything, it feels like that's a pace at which not much contemporary fiction allows itself yes. to move anymore, right? Yes. Do you think yes. of it as being in a kind of more, I hesitate to use the words old-fashioned because I don't think that's accurate, but just classical, I suppose, classically novelistic. You see, my, my, my goal, even from the first book I wrote, uh, was always write something that is timeless, not timely, but timeless. I mean, if 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 you if I could combine both the timely and the timeless, I would be I would be selling more copies. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not interested in writing about the timely because the timely becomes outdated within a year or six months. And to have spent you know close to twelve years, ten years writing this book, I didn't want it to last for just 
one year. So they have to take on themes which are not of the moment, but are of of hopefully of all time. Uh, and that's that's what I try to achieve with with each book I write. That I'm, I'm looking at the at the long term here. That they have to they have to be relevant or or, or even um, even entertaining. Um, 50, 80, 100 years from today. Uh, it's Even entertaining. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree with that in terms of theme. Um, but I think there's something sort of classical about your prose on a sentence level. Um, it feels very elegant to me. It feels very, um, you know, again, it feels kind of timeless. And I wonder it's if you could talk about the process of, you know, when you're writing a sentence, what are you striving for? What are you stripping back? What are you adding? How are you thinking about how to make your your prose timeless as well as the story itself? Well, when I'm writing, um, first of all, I try to think of what the, the effect I'm trying to achieve with, with that sentence. Uh, and as you said, I try to make it as smooth as possible as, and as clear as possible because uh, I, I feel that if, if, if my writing is, is, is blurry or, or smudgy or, or obtuse, then I haven't worked hard enough in conveying, my, conveying what I want to say to the reader. If, if a reader has to work, has to read my sentences three or four times to understand what I'm trying to say, um, then I feel that I have wasted his time his or her time or i haven't been i haven't polished my sentences hard enough and i think that's part of my influence from uh, i was previously a, a lawyer so our our sentences had to be very clear so as to avoid any 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 uh, uh misunderstanding when other people read it so we have to be crystal clear what we're trying to convey and to do that to create a, a clear writing, first of all, my mind has to be clear. I have to be absolutely clear what I'm trying to say uh, before I put words down on, on my screen. And I think a lot of times when we read unclear or vague writing, it's because the person writing that hasn't really thought through what about the ideas that he's trying to convey. So he himself is not clear about what he's trying to convey. But he's already put the word. He's already written down everything, so that vagueness comes through, and it's it's very frustrating, I think, for a reader to try and guess and second guess and triple guess what the the writer was trying to to convey. So I try to avoid that. Well, while we're talking about style, I also wonder, after reading so many of Maum's books and being inside the character of Willie Maum, did you feel his style? Kind of rubbing off on you, or did you, were you aware of it in your own writing of him? Well, that's that's a very good question because when I started writing this book, my immediate uh, intention was to strive to write like him because, after all, this this book is about him. So I tried to copy his style or to uh, to replicate it as close as closely as I could, but I didn't I didn't like it. I I just felt it wasn't my way of writing uh, and it became a sort of a pastiche so I, I dropped that straight away uh, but in my research I also came across uh, his views on writing 
and they're, they're very pertinent today. If if, if you read his his um, one of the last books he he, he wrote, uh, it's sort of like his memoir called "The Summing Up." There are a lot of comments that he put in there about the art of writing. One of the things he said was, uh, "What he strives in his writing is is clarity, clarity, clarity." <laughs> so, <laughs> and when I read that, ah, that's. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why, if you read his stories and his novels today, they still feel quite modern. You know, they they haven't dated compared to his uh, contemporaries. One final question, which is: um, at one point, Mom tells another character that a story without love wouldn't work, and I wanted to ask you if you agree with him. I think so. Um, that wasn't that was actually my my viewpoint. It wasn't Mom's. Uh, <laughs> I, I just put those words in there because I, as I was writing that scene, I was trying to think, I was trying to find reasons and motivations for, again, for Leslie to trust him. You know, and and this this sentence came to me, and it suddenly struck me that all the stories we read, all the the, the novels and stories that have uh, remained in our memory. It, they're all about love, aren't they? You know, the, in the end, it, it's it's all about love. And and a story that with that isn't about love can can you think of any? I, I I can't think of any at the moment. I can think of only one, which is American uh, Psycho. I think you can say that's not about <laughs> love. <laughs> oh, but, but that's about self love. <laughs> Tan Tuaneng, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you. Okay, Octavia and I are back to discuss today's theme, which is writing about writers. I personally am really excited to talk about this. I know, Octavia, maybe you less so, (laughs) (laughs) because it's an element of so many of my favorite books, which I didn't quite realize until I started reading the list of all of the books that are about writers. In fact, when we discussed doing this theme, we couldn't quite believe that we'd never talked about it before because there are so many great and famous novels and nonfiction books about writers, but we haven't exactly done it before. We touched on it, for instance, in our Books About Books show with Ruth Azeki, but this is the first time we're really getting into writers and in books. So I, I want to start by asking Octavia Bright, do you like reading about writers in fiction? Are you intrigued when you hear that a novel is based upon a writer, for instance, or if the protagonist is a writer? Yes, and also no. Um, <laughs> I think basically it's because I'm my no is because I'm wary of anything that feeds into the myth of the artist. You know, whether that's writer, painter, actor, whatever, because I I'm I'm tired of it. You know, and I don't think it's a myth that really serves us anymore. So anything that's just kind of fluffing that up, I'm not really into, but I am extremely here for writing about writers that interrogates that myth or problematizes it or satirizes it or dispels it somehow or fills in the gaps, you know? So like, I loved reading The House of Doors because it's not 
it's not regurgitating any artist myths. It's actually a very interesting look into kind of the motivations behind a writer and, and all that kind of, and then his rea- his real life. The books I'm thinking of here, though, they're, they're all actually books I realize that are about fictional rather than real writers. Um, so I'm thinking of books like my old favorite, Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master of Margarita, which if you're playing literary friction, bingo, mark your cards right now. <laughs> Has there been a show where you haven't mentioned The Master and Margarita? Yes, That's my question. Definitely. There has <laughs> been one or two shows where it has not been appropriate, <laughs> but currently it's very appropriate. Or I was thinking also about, this is a novel I haven't read, but the way you've described Possession by A.S. Byatt before, which I think sounds like such an interesting book about writers and writing. Um, of course, Virginia Woolf's Orlando is top of my list here as well, which is, you know, if you haven't read it, all about the adventures of a poet who lives for centuries and gender swaps and romps through a load of encounters with, you know, key figures from English literary history. And it gives Woolf a really fabulous chance to um, kind of revel in in all of that and also subvert it. And I'm also thinking of Borges, who wrote brilliantly and very sardonically about the figure of the writer and himself as a split figure, as writer and also written figure. And um, and then I, I heard about this book I'm so intrigued to read, I haven't read yet, by uh, the Chilean writer Roberto Bolaño called Nazi Literature in the Americas. Have you heard of this one? No, I haven't. It sounds amazing and very much in the mode of Borges. Um, so on the surface, it's like an invented encyclopedia of imaginary fascist writers. But really, from what I've gleaned from reading reviews, it's actually about the meaning of and trouble with literary taste making and it kind of interrogates the narcissism of the writer's project in itself but it's also kind of a funny witty spin on the tyranny of criticism and sends up the whole kind of project so I don't know it sounds great that's that's the kind of writing about writers that I'm really really into what nice. about you I mean I know this is like your, your absolute jam so lay, lay it on yeah it's my absolute <laughs> jam I'm afraid um, yeah I've discussed this before but I love art about art and this definitely applies to writing about writing and I think a book about a writer is a really interesting way to think about what writing can do and how it works. So yes, I, I'm always excited when I read that a novel has a writer as a protagonist or features a writer. I agree with you about the myth of the writer. I think any book that doesn't think deeply about that probably isn't succeeding. But I think most of the the great books about writers absolutely are interrogating the idea of of the artist as as a sort of god and i i do think sometimes i'm like oh a writer protagonist how difficult was that to come up with in terms of your own experience as a writer? Like sometimes I'm like, could you not make it a painter or like a (laughs) a musician? Like, could we not disguise it a little bit more? I, you know, I kid, I kid, but sometimes it seems a little obvious. I think like you, I get a little bit more excited if the writer is an imagined writer rather than a real historical writer. So Some of my favorite books about writers, like Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce or um, Depth of Speculation by Jenny Offal, have writers in them, but and and maybe they're based upon the experience of the writer, but they're not actually real historical figures, rather than something like The Master by Colm Tobin, which is about Henry James, and I admittedly haven't read, but I haven't read it because it doesn't excite me quite as much 
And I think that's because it's just extremely hard to accurately depict in fiction someone whose writing and voice is already so familiar to us. I mean, it's sort of what Tuan was. I think Tuan achieved it by not really making mom's writing a part of the story and sort of getting him in the third person. But it's a really hard balancing act. Writers often don't pull it off. Yeah, agreed. But how about nonfiction? Do you like reading nonfiction about writers? I mean, I'd say I'm way more interested in those kinds of books than I used to be. I think it's something that happens when you hit your early 30s. Not that I'm in my early 30s anymore, but I feel like uh, a lot of my friends the same. We suddenly became interested in biographies because we suddenly felt that much closer to middle age. And suddenly, like, you know, wanting to to know about how other people live felt more interesting. I don't know. That's a cod theory. But um, yeah, there were two that really got me going on this track were Chris Krause's biography of Kathy Acker, which is called Kathy Acker, a literary biography. And then this massive joint biography of Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari called Intersecting Lives by François Doss, which I'm still reading. It's a huge book and it's a great one to dip in and out of. Both of these books, super, super fascinating about the lives of writers and thinkers that I've been interested in for a while. And both of them have very, very interesting insights into the lives of the people in question and also their practices as writers. Like one of the things I loved reading about in Chris Krause's book about Kathy Acker is, is Kathy's commitment to exercise and muscle building as, as related to her literary prowess. And it's kind of fabulous. Um, so yeah, I think they can be very interesting. What about you? Yeah, I know what you mean about biographies. Maybe once we've experienced more of life, we're interested in others' experience of life as well. I've definitely become more interested. I think it's also because the specter of death is suddenly like upon yes. us in a, in a more <laughs> tangible way. Like I think it's, it's more like, about being able to see the end. <laughs> but then why would that make you more interested in reading about other people's lives? I think because you're suddenly like, wait, am I doing it right? Like, is yeah. there another way? <laughs> I think suddenly you're you're no longer just living on instinct. You're living more, maybe um, thinking more about, thinking forward more. I certainly am anyway. I didn't think forward at all before I was about 30. Yeah, totally. And I, I think I've, I've also just become more interested in the circumstances of the creation of some of the art that I really love. Um, yeah, I, I found myself going to biography because it just gives me information about the, the world in which something was created. And just, I mean, I, I, of course, believe that a piece of art can be experienced without sort of understanding that the history behind it or the circumstances of its creation. But I think it just adds an extra exciting layer. Um, and the older I get, the more knowledge I want to soak up. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's... She's a big sponge, everyone. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded so pompous. Um, <laughs> I think you get what I mean, maybe. (laughs) Um, But I would say the nonfiction that I love about writers the most is is a little bit more playful or creative than a straight biography. And again, I think nonfiction is a really wonderful medium for exploring what writing is and what it can do. So I'm thinking of Elif Bottomen's The Possessed, which was her first book, nonfiction, these really wonderful quirky essays about loving Russian literature and spending time with people who love Russian literature and traveling all around the world to do that. And 
that's a you know it's kind of a travelogue it's um literary criticism because she's thinking through what these books are it's all of these character portraits but it's also about this wider look at like why do we love books why do we read books and that's of course a theme that comes up over and over again in her fiction as well there's also a book i'm desperate to read called parallel lives by phyllis rose it's a study of five victorian marriages And in all of these marriages, one of the partners is a writer. And it sounds amazing. And it sounds like a really compelling look at the hidden sacrifices made for partnerships in art. And then I I also really love books that have an element of a a writer's biography woven into them uh, as part of a larger story. And the example I was thinking of here is how H is for Hawk is, of course, about Helen MacDonald training a hawk and and, uh, dealing with grief, but also about T.H. White, the writer, and his life and the way she weaves that in. It's a really beautiful portrait of... um, I I think, again, it becomes about writing and creation and the way the written word interacts with the natural world. So yeah, I really do like nonfiction about writing and I can't wait to seek out more. So finally, I would love to ask you, which writer would you most like to read a novel about? Oh, a tricky one. I think Simone de Beauvoir. I would love to read a really vivid, rich, massive novel about her whole life. And from her kind of childhood and her relationship with her best friend that inspired The Inseparables, the novel that her kind of posthumously published novel that we spoke to Lauren Elkin about, but then all the way through her years with Sartre, I just, it was such a big life and she lived across such an interesting span and she wrote in so many different ways. And I just think it would be a phenomenal book. Who's going to do it though? That's the second question. Which writer would you most like to read a novel about and who would you like to write it? Yeah. So do you have an answer for that? No. God, no. Are you kidding? (laughs) I have no idea. Who could do it justice? I don't know. Well, it would have to be some. If it's a big canvas novel, it would have to be someone who's really good at the big sweeping canvas novels. Throw a name in the hat, Carrie. Go on. Well... Meg Wallitzer, very good hey. at big sweeping novels, but I don't know if Simone de Beauvoir is her territory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> um, what about you? Who's your novelist you'd like to read about or write well, I think there's a great novel to be written about Donna Tartt and Ooh. more specifically about her time in Bennington. You Ooh, know, like sort a of bitchy like, campus novel. Yes, I would love to read that. Because she's so elusive. You know, we know so little about her in some ways. And we love her as a, an, a writer as well. And, you know, at Bennington, she was surrounded by all of those people like Brett Easton Ellis. It's just like, it's so juicy and exciting. Well, and it could still think about like genre. And I think it could be really playful. And even better, maybe it would be Donna Tartt autofiction. Oh, okay. Nailed it. What do you, she what do you understood think the assignment. <laughs> yes. I mean, I made up the assignments. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is your recommendation on the theme of writing about writers? 
It is a book called Aliens and Anorexia by Chris Krause. And it's a novel, but in classic Krause style, it's actually quite hard to pin it down. Um, but basically, it weaves together Chris Krause's own experience as a filmmaker trying to find a distributor for her film Gravity and Grace, which takes its title from a book of Simone Weil's writing in 1996 Berlin. And then the other story is that, that of the philosopher Simone Weil in the 1940s writing work that came to be known as her radical philosophy of sadness. It's a really brilliant book. It's about failed artists and ecstatic visionaries, and it's full of Krauss's customary wit and clarity and really profound empathy. Um, but I love that it's about the failure of art as well as about art. Nice. What's yours? Mine is Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday, which is a great novel about writers and writing. It features this young aspiring writer who gets into a relationship with an older famous writer named Ezra, who is a very dis thinly disguised portrait of Philip Roth. And oh, basically... <laughs> amazing. It's so good, Octavia. You have to read it. The way the novel is structured shouldn't work, and I don't want to give too much away about it, but it does. She pulls it off and... It's this very beautiful meditation on who is allowed to tell a story in the life of the writer. And I really love it. Brilliant. Right, this is Carrie back with Octavia and Tuan to give our book recommendations for this month. So Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to. My recommendation this month is a book I feel quite evangelical about, actually. Uh, it's called Greek Lessons by Han Kang, which was published initially in Korean in 2011, but it's just been translated into English for the very first time, translated by Deborah Smith and Emily Ye Won. And it's a very short book you could easily think it was going to be a slender story. And it is so far from being a slender story. It's ostensibly about a woman who's lost her voice and a man who is losing his sight. And we never learn their names. And it's a kind of a little pas de deux. In some ways, actually, it's one that reminds me of House of Doors simply in the fact that the woman's chapters are narrated in the third person and the man's chapters are narrated in the first person. So you get that sense of um, separation between the two voices in a similar way to in your book. But this one is really, um, it's more like almost like a fable in some ways. It's very philosophical, very poetic exploration of connection and alienation and grief and loss, but also these kind of structural and systemic forces that shape our lives. And then on the other hand, it's about the beauty of chance and also the kind of mad faith that you have to have in intimacy generally. So, I mean, very short plot synopsis. The woman is a poet. She's worked as a translator. She's also worked as a teacher. She's a mother and she's been separated from her child and she loses her voice. And the sense that it's related to the trauma she suffered in her life is there, but it's never that simple for Kang. She makes it a much more kind of complicated story. Anyway, this woman, she lost her voice and she decides to learn ancient Greek because she thinks that this dead language that you don't have to pronounce out loud in order to learn 
might open a new pathway back towards the power of speech. And the man who teaches the ancient Greek classes is the other character in the story. So it's his evening classes that bring them together. And his story is is just as kind of rich and layered and complex as hers. And at the end of the novel, I won't give it away, but essentially these two characters get closer and closer to becoming entwined and it's reflected in the book's structure as well as in the plot. And it's so smart and so enveloping. And I I kind of already can't wait to read it again because the language is so layered and poetic. You just know that having got to the end, you're going to read it again and learn a whole new set of kind of layers and realizations within it. So yeah, I really, I've been, I've been banging on about it to everyone I can. So I'm really pleased to be able to talk about it on the podcast. (laughs) Wonderful. I read her two other novels published in English. So I really can't wait to read this. Tuan, could we have your recommendation? Okay. My recommendation would be Penelope Lively's Moon Tiger. I came to Penelope Lively quite late because I really never heard of her until I picked up this book in the shop. And since then, uh, I've been also been quite evangelical about it and telling everyone <laughs> I know to, to please read it, please read it. Uh, it's about Claudia Hampton, a beautiful, famous writer, lies dying in a hospital, but she decides to write a history of the world. So it's it's more about her life, this, this history of the world. And she's not a likable character. She's prickly, she's arrogant, uh, she she's domineering, but it's... She's one of the most remarkable characters I've I've read, and Penelope Lively's writing is exquisite, uh, understated, dry, but so rich and and filled with with suppressed emotion. And on the last page, uh, I'm not giving away any spoilers because we we know that Claudia is dying. Um, Penelope Lively describes a dead scene, and it's it's so vividly done so understated uh, that the room just becomes empty and I don't know how Penelope Lively did it but the whole scene suddenly becomes depleted of life of air itself I think Penelope Lively has been quite underrated and under the radar for for a while hasn't she she has and yes and this is this is her masterpiece I'd say and uh, and I would really urge everyone to to pick it up and, and read it and reread it. Agreed. That's a, a book that my mother loved and, and read to me when I was quite young and I um I loved it as well. I mean I was probably too young to appreciate it fully, so I should definitely go back. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> my recommendation is the debut novel Olga Dies Dreaming by Sochil Gonzalez. I listened to the audiobook of this book, which has three different narrators and which is really excellently done. So I would recommend doing that. It was a great companion to me as I gardened and cooked and cycled all around town. And this is the story of Olga and her brother Pietro, born in the neighborhood of Sunset Park in Brooklyn to two revolutionary Puerto Rican parents. Their, their fathers died and long ago their mother left them to fight for Puerto Rican independence um, and communicates only by letter. And over the course of the novel, they're both forced to reckon with her choice as, as they basically grapple with their own choices in life. What I loved about this novel was that it was, I mean, it's almost kind of gossipy. It's a really compelling plot. There's love, there's, you know, secrets, 
Olga's working as a wedding planner and you you get the kind of intricacies of her life as a wedding planner and her affair with an older man and um, her brother's kind of political career. You learn a lot about their relationship with their family and her love-hate relationship with her cousin. But also it's a very nuanced novel about uh, Puerto Rico, about the Puerto Rican diaspora, about Puerto Rican independence, about activism and different types of activism that we choose and the price of those choices. It's about politics and how complicated they are um, and how entangled they are with so many other things. And also about the devastation of Puerto Rico by Hurricane Maria in 2017, which I admit I didn't realize quite how horribly that island was destroyed and completely ignored by the United States. So I feel that I learned a lot and it, it was a novel that had big, complicated themes without kind of hitting you over the head. What you were talking about, Tuan, it doesn't teach you a lesson. It, it merely presents things to you, um, but in a really compelling plot as well. So I really liked reading it and I would recommend it to anyone. Sounds fantastic. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Tan Tuaneng and to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram and get in touch by email litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and it helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction. Literary Friction.